0: Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Oh my goodness, Zelda.
1: I cannot believe this actually <laughs> is happening in our lifetime.
0: I know. For the first time, y'all, we are recording this episode with each other in the same room. Ta da! It's so crazy. It's oh so my great, too. Denise.
1: Thank you so much for coming and helping me unpack. I mean, Welcome. oh my god, to our dear listeners, I just switched cities and states and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And I have been utterly overwhelmed. My ADHD has taken over my life. And Denise gave up her weekend to drive down here and help me unpack and hold my hand. So, you know, big snaps <laughs> to Denise right yeah, now.
0: Last time we were recording, I could just tell that she was just overwhelmed with everything. I'm like, you want me to come down? She's like, yes. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, let me just talk to my husband, make sure that this weekend works for us. And It's so cute that you want to pretend you asked
1: me. You were just like, I'm coming down. That's it. Here's when I can come. And I was well, like, that's true. okay, I guess that works. In and my I- head,
0: I have it that I asked. I but, <laughs> <laughs> but you're probably right. I probably did say, okay, I'm coming.
1: <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, you did. <laughs> And I'm very cool with it because, oh, my gosh, look at what we just got done. I mean, yes. like, I actually know where my dishes are now. That's nice.
0: That's huge. It's
1: huge. Oh, my gosh.
0: Because, so, I mean, Zelda works a full-time job. And so she got her move here and then she had to go straight to work. So she hasn't had much time and she hasn't had anybody here to help. So it gets overwhelming.
1: Yeah. I've been totally overwhelmed. So
0: thank you, Denise. You're welcome. You're awesome. And Sorry. this is Murderous Fruits for anybody who's just joining us for the first time where family and murder meet. So basically what we do is we talk about a crime or a criminal, and then we get into their family tree. But before we get started, I do have a quick announcement to make, or a couple announcements. Are you having a baby? No. Okay. Don't, yeah, my husband would be in panic mode, and I would too, because I'm posing in on, I'm not going to say how old I am, but <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not ready for another one. However, we have started a Patreon account. And for those who are wondering, you're like, what's a Patreon? Well, we're looking for patrons. So if you are a fan of the show and you would like to contribute as little as $3 a month to $20 a month, it helps us run everything because doing this is not free, unfortunately. It does cost some money. and So any support we could get would be great. And if you do that, we'll offer you a few little things like... From a shout out to a 30 minute genealogy consultation with me. And we're also selling merchandise too. So, yeah,
1: personally, I've got my eye on one of those travel bugs. Yeah. Like, I think I'm going to do that.
0: So, and I got some stickers and I even have a mask. So, oh, very cool. But I left that at home on mistakes. So, there you go. All
1: the most fashionable people will be wearing one. Of
0: course, especially with this Delta variant. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. my goodness. Okay. But you can find information on the merchandise. And the Patreon page on our web page. So that's what I got there. And I also had something I want us to do that's a little new, and we'll do it at the end of the show, is I want to share our most recent review. <gasps>
1: we got a review?
0: We got a review. Oh my
1: gosh, we're hitting the big time, girl.
0: I know, we're up to six.
1: <laughs> Woohoo!
0: So we, we we're always on here going, oh, please leave us a review and five stars. So if you guys leave us a review, we'll read your review
1: yeah absolutely and if it's nice we'll read it on air
0: right <laughs> <laughs> so i thought i would uh, do that and we could start that at the end why don't, don't we sorry? start this is our last mini-sode Aww, for the summer i've really enjoyed the mini-sodes me too and you know what we'll probably revisit them next summer and mm-hmm. maybe we'll do it who knows when yeah <laughs> we might throw one in as i'm going oh there's not much on this one let's turn it into a mini-sode there we go yeah but um today we are talking about who zelda
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, I thought my stinky brothers were awful, but they are nothing compared to this son of Satan, Jesse Pomeroy. Yeah, he had some
0: issues.
1: Oh, my goodness. So he was born on November 29th, 1859. And apparently it went downhill from there. Mm. So his bastard father frequently beat the boys. And he made Jesse, in particular, the target of a fair amount of humiliation. Due to one of his eyes being visibly damaged from birth. It looked like he had a cataract in one eye. Which he could kind of see through it. But it wasn't as good as normal vision. Mm -hmm. So because of all of this. Jesse kind of became a loner. And you know as children are wont to do. When they're going through their emo phase. Read a lot of horror stories and goth comics. So now his mom however was convinced. That if people would just stop bullying him. Then Jesse would stop murdering and torturing animals. Yeah. Ooh. So she's a little bit of denial, perhaps, about her sweet boy. Yes. Then his father, well, after one particularly bad beating in 1872, his mother Ruth Ann just ran his father out of the house and was like, "I am done with your bullshit." And then afterwards, supported Jesse and his brother Charles as best she could as a dressmaker and a general store owner. Mm-hmm. Well, there's so much to this, and it's it's tragic all the way through because it involves everybody involved really is a child, yeah. and it's. It's just awful. So I read this really good article by Roseanne Montillo from March 13th, 2015 for ABC News. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of this next part is actually from that article. In late 1871, in the city of Chelsea, just across the river from Charlestown, children began to suffer vicious beatings at the hands of a boy some described as a bigger, taller and stronger boy than they were. Some of them were actually sexually assaulted as well. The boy would befriend them, offer them money and treats, and then accompany them to a remote location where he would have his way with them. He became known as the boy torturer and the red devil. Mm. A description of the boy was subsequently published in the Boston Globe. And Ruth Ann Pomeroy read it and recognized her son. So she immediately moved the family to South Boston. Dang. I missed that part. (laughs) Yeah. Now, from the very beginning, he didn't really fit in. You know, we talked about his right eye. Honestly, people kind of describe it as
0: revolting looking Mm -hmm. at it, which I feel is a little harsh, but apparently it really set people off. You know, being different back then was more offensive to people than it was, is even now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And at school, he was the target of jokes. He was bullied viciously. And then he in turn bullied people who were smaller than he was. Mm -hmm. Um, So in August of 1872, a young boy was found tortured on the sands of South Boston. That following September, another child was discovered beaten, assaulted, and tied up to a telephone post, also in South Boston. But unlike the rest of the victims, and there were at this point about five victims, Mm -hmm. the latest one gave a very good description of his assailant, including the fact he had a peculiar right eye, a white eye that resembled a marble. Jesse Pomeroy was arrested, convicted, and then, due to his age, was sentenced to the state reform school at Westboro for the term of his minority, which was another six years. Okay, So, realize he was 12 at this point, okay? Now, his mother, of course, ran interference for him, and he was instead released after about a year and a half into her custody. Well, Denise, that yeah. was one big fucking mistake. Oh. I- a little girl named Katie Curran went missing and about five weeks after that, the body of a little boy, only four years old, he was about four years old, oh. his name was Horace Millen and he was found on the beach, horrifically abused. Thankfully, the police immediately thought of Jesse Pomeroy, mm-hmm. even though there was no immediate evidence that was linking him to uh, to any of this. But it was kind of like, you know, this seems sort of like this, this is his M.O. Now, Jesse immediately confessed to killing little Horace, but then later when he got a lawyer, he recanted it. So the backlash from the Boston people was swift and severe, and with lawyer fees and everything mounting, Ruth Ann Pomeroy was forced to sell her store. This led to the body of 10-year-old Katie Curran being found in the basement hidden under a pile of ashes. So his lawyer immediately changed the original innocent plea to not guilty by reason of insanity on the murder charge regarding Horace Millen. Interestingly, Jesse was never charged with the murder of Katie Curran, seemingly because they had enough to put him away for the Horace Millen murders so they didn't bother. But he was definitely, that murder was attributed to him. Okay. As an aside, the trial judge Horace Gray became a U.S. Supreme Court justice later.
0: Just a little tidbit. That's interesting.
1: So needless to say, a few days of hearing evidence from folks like Mrs. Pomeroy's assistant, Minnie, who did survive. Although I do hold that as a Minnie, her life was in danger once she got a little bit older. Yeah, we've learned that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Minnie's, you're in danger, protect yourselves. And they never have a puppy with them. So just don't even pretend. (laughs) Anyway. So with that evidence, some neighbors who noticed a weird smell, you know, there were a lot of people coming forward. Jesse Pomeroy was pronounced guilty on December 10th, 1874, and the jury recommended mercy on account of his youth. I mean, he Mm -hmm. was 12 when he committed these, these murders. I don't think he was at that point maybe 14 I think yeah I think he was yeah because it took a couple of years for everything to go through the system and then at the sentencing the sentencing judge granted the death penalty by hanging to the then 15 year old Jesse Pomeroy because that's the only thing he could do by statute for the crime he had committed Mm -hmm. that's the only thing he could do so then things got a little interesting if they hadn't been before in the state of Massachusetts in order for a person to actually be hanged for a crime the governor has to sign a death warrant So all that was left was the governor had to sign the death warrant and assign a date for Pomeroy's execution. However, the governor, William Gaston, refused to comply. He did not want to hang a child. And, you know, you can kind of see why, right? Mm -hmm. Even though he's evil, he's still a child. The only legal means of sparing Pomeroy's life was through the Massachusetts Governor's Council, and only if a simple majority of the nine-member council voted to commute the death penalty. Over the next year and a half, the council voted three times. The first two votes upheld Pomeroy's execution, and both times Governor Gaston refused to sign the death warrant. Yep. So he was just like, hey, I can do this as long as you can. So in August of 1876, the council took a third vote anonymously, and Pomeroy's sentence was commuted to life in prison in solitary confinement. That's harsh. Yeah. That's and I'm like, did they think they were protecting him because he was so young? I mean, or were they afraid he would kill the, the other inmates? I, don't, I mean, it just
0: seems so much worse. Yeah,
1: it really does. It really does, especially what we know now about the effect of solitary confinement on a person. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems just so inhuman to do that to a 15 year old. So, on the evening of September 7th, 1876, Pomeroy was transferred from the Suffolk County Jail to the state prison in Charleston and began his life in solitary. At that time, he was 16 years and nine months old, and he remained incarcerated at the Charleston State Prison for pretty much the rest of his life. At first, he tried to escape but never got very far, and they were constantly confiscating things from his cell. In 1917, with the support of District Attorney Joseph Pelletier, Pomeroy's sentence was commuted to the extent of allowing him the privileges afforded to other life prisoners. Mm -hmm. Weirdly, at first he resisted. He was like, I want nothing less than a pardon. And frankly, he'd always been a loner. Right. So I imagine after decades of being in solitary, he was pretty nervous about joining the general population, but he did eventually adjust to the changed circumstances. And he actually appeared in a minstrel show at the prison. Now, minstrel shows are awful. Right. And, you know, but it's weird, right? He's just like suddenly a showman. I don't Mm -hmm. know. In 1929, by this time an elderly man in frail health, he was transferred to Bridgewater Hospital for the Criminally Insane, where he died on September 29th, 1932, known to this day as the youngest serial killer in American history. Mm -hmm. And he was.
0: So he was 72 when he died? Which meant he spent 58 years in prison.
1: Yep. And most of those years in solitary confinement. Because, I mean, it wasn't until 1917. Mm -hmm. So it was only really the last 14, 15 years of his life that he was actually around other people.
0: And even then, he wasn't really around a lot of people. If you're in life, right, you, you might have cells next to other lifers, but you're not in general population. Right. Or you have the ability to be social. Right. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And the whole thing is just so horribly tragic. Because this is one case, I mean, but for his father, Mm -hmm. I think this is definitely a monster that was created because his brother, Charles, seemingly kept out of trouble. Yes. Um, There's no indications that Charles helped him with any of these things. Mm Mm-hmm um Or helped hide bodies or anything like that, which family members can do sometimes, right. you know. We've seen that. Um His mother, you know, seems like, you know, a normal mother who had a husband who was battering everybody, you know. And I'm just like, man, if he'd had a different father, things probably would have turned out a bit differently. He probably still would have been bullied at school. Right. But he would have had a stronger home life. because, And he was a very intelligent young man, which is interesting because a couple of the articles were the, in the early articles were saying he was somehow mentally deficient, but it, pro- it was proven later he was not at all mentally deficient. Um, he was actually, you know, above average smart. Oh yeah. Um, he
0: was very bright. And that yeah. came out later in different articles. And I noticed that Boston continually would bring up articles about him the whole time he was in prison. So mm-hmm. he was not forgotten. Right. In any way. Um, and part of it's there, his own doing. Mm-hmm. and his mom's doing yeah but yeah
1: well and she maintained his innocence till her dying day
0: she did she really believed he was yeah innocent or that barely should be let out now right and now started within a couple of years but
1: yeah yeah which i'm like i mean that kind of loyalty because i gotta tell you my mom who loved me my mother loved me mm-hmm. but had i gone around killing and doing horrible things she would have been like yes sucks to be you You deserve everything that's raining down on your head. I would probably
0: be a little bit like your mom (laughs) with my kids. And I've told them that. But what I've told my kids is, let's say you do something awful. I will always love you. And I will be there as an emotional support. But I'm also just as likely to call the police and let them know that you did this awful thing. Hey, stitches get stitches. Yeah. (laughs) Now, that doesn't mean like, I mean, there's all sorts of scenarios where I might not... (laughs) <laughs> like an abusive husband or something and something hmm, goodbye Earl, you know, the Dixie chicks. Yeah. But I'm, I'm thinking just in general. Yep. Okay. Well, let me tell you what I found on Jesse Harding Pomeroy. And, you know, he starts so far back. I mean, he's born in 1859, which is why I thought he was perfect for a Minnesota. It's not like I was going to dig a ton of stuff up and he didn't have any children because, you know, he ended up in prison. And he's a tough one because he was a kid who grew up in prison. He was born to Private Thomas J. Pomeroy and Ruth Ann Snowman, the youngest of their two children. And you touched on this a bit, but I don't believe he grew up in a stable household at all. And it wasn't happy either. His father, Thomas, would abandon the family at times, forcing Ruth to start her own business. And that's why she started the dress business. It was before they split. She became a dressmaker in South Boston. And she and her sons removed to that area when Thomas left before 1872. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was gone pretty early in. And you'll discover why. I think there's a pattern going on here in the family. In fact, in 1878, four years after Jesse was sent to prison, the Boston Globe on the 11th of May, 1878 had the following. Mrs. Ruth Pomeroy, the mother of Jesse, appeared claiming a divorce from Thomas J. Pomeroy on the grounds of drunkenness. The evidence was not sufficient and the libel was dismissed. So he's abandoned her long since she's trying to get divorced and they're not allowing the divorce. Oh my God. And this is after they know all the stuff in the papers about the family.
1: Oh my God.
0: Yeah. So she was kind of in a rock and a hard place. And I do find it odd that the divorce wasn't granted as even in 1880, Ruth wasn't even living with Thomas. Really? Yeah. In fact, I have no idea where Thomas was other than absent.
1: Wow. Did he ever, like, visit his son or anything else? No.
0: I can find zero evidence that he ever visited him, much less spoke about him. Wow. Um, Thomas died in January 1898 in Boston of cirrhosis of the liver. Ah. Proving that drunkenness was a big issue for him. Yeah. So he's an alcoholic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That poor family.
0: Yeah, Ruth would die in January 1915 in Weymouth, Massachusetts, of pneumonia. Mm. And we'll come back to both in a bit. But we're first going to talk about Jesse's older brother, Charles Jefferson Pomeroy. Oh, do you? <laughs> um, and they were just 21 months apart, so just less than two years. Okay. Charles left home soon after his brother's conviction, and where he worked as a cook at a restaurant in 1880. He married Inez Durell in 1877 and had two daughters, but the marriage was brief. Inez died in February 1883 of hysterical mania. Hysterical mania? That's what they called it. That's odd. I forgot. I was going to look this up, so let me do this really quick. Cause of death. They have the weirdest causes of death.
1: I mean, did they feel
0: like her womb was wandering? My guess is that it was dealt with, like, with her womb or... She was depressed yeah. or something. It just sounds like that because women were hysterical. It was all because of their womb back then. You know
1: what? I will look this up while you keep going. Okay. Because
0: I'm curious about that. And I, I wasn't I ab- able to get a answer. good thing. So he ma- Charles married again four years later to Emma Field. And they had six children. Charles would start working as a hotel manager. A career he kept at. Sometime between 1910 and 1919... He, Emma, and their youngest son moved to Alhambra, California, so they left the East Coast. Other children would find their way to California as well. Charles died in June 1919 at age 61. Um, we'll quickly talk about some of Charles's t- children, starting with the daughters he had with Inez. After their mother's death, they lived with Grandmother Ruth mm. um, in 1900, not with their father and stepmother. That's interesting. And, you know, I see this a lot in the old census records where the husband or the wife remarries and the kids from the previous marriage aren't with that family. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes I wonder if it's because they just didn't have the finances or.
1: Or the stepmom wanted nothing to do with them.
0: Or the stepfather.
1: Yeah. Either way. Oh, my gosh.
0: So oldest daughter, Maybelle Ruth, never married and likely died in 1918 at the age of 39. In 19, I found her living with Ruth and listed as being unable to read or write. Hmm. Now, leading me to believe that she had a developmental disability because, you know, in 1910, she would have been 31 and her sister was able to read and write. Interesting. Yeah. And I I couldn't find any obituary or death record for her. Hmm. Her sister, Abby, had had no such issues, even completing high school before she married Wallace Glidden in 1905. In 1918, they lived in Quincy, Massachusetts with their two sons, but were in Alhambra, California by 1920, where they would both work as real estate brokers. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, they both did it. I mean, and it was a job they were both successful at if the 1930 census is a clue. Wow. Because that's where I find that the real estate, the house that they lived in, was valued at $45,000. Oh, my. Yes, that's about $605,000 today. Now, to understand, $605,000 home in California today doesn't seem like a whole lot for Californians. But back then, that would have been a big house because the housing boom hadn't happened in California yet. That didn't happen until like the 70s where the prices just jumped. Interesting. Now on to Charles's children with Emma. Before you talk about that, I
1: found out what um, hysterical mania is. Oh, great. It is a mania developing in persons. And I'm sure they mean women. Yes. Yes. Who have previously exhibited hysterical symptoms and which presents many hysterical features. And I don't think by hysterical they mean funny. Mm -hmm. Uh, With delusions, hallucinations, illusions, and an unrestrained endeavor to attract attention. But how would that be the cause of death unless? You know, I cannot imagine that that Mm. would, unless you danced yourself to death. I don't know. That's so weird. Unless she killed herself or. But wouldn't they have said suicide? That's what I would think. That's really weird. That is weird. I I think what we need to do is get a hold of a gynecologist (laughs) and ask them what hysterical hysterical many was, because all the articles I'm finding on it were written by old tiny gynecologists.
0: I'm like a medical historian.
1: Oh, I wonder if we know any. I'm sure we can track one down on TikTok. I'm sure we could. Okay. That'll be my next project.
0: Okay. So we're going on to Charles's Children with Emma. The first up is John J. Pomeroy, and he had great success, but he didn't go out to California with his family. Instead, he went to Detroit, Michigan and became a steward of the Detroit Athletic Club. Oh, that's fun. Now that led to a job at the Red Run Golf Club, which still exists to this day, where he eventually became a manager, as well as president and six-time director of the National Club Managers Association. So he had some great success. Now, John's brother and Charles' son, William, did go to California and even raced yachts. Oh, my goodness. That sounds very fancy. I found a 1955 article in the Valley Times detailing a Honolulu yacht race. William entered an 108-foot schooner, the Ramona. I have no idea if he won. Wow. His son Ansel Washburn, Pomeroy, married Eileen Crown in June 1924. The announcement included information that Eileen was a former student of the Anna Head School in Berkeley. Oh, So the marriage ended in divorce a few years later, but I still found myself curious about the Anna Head School. So, of course, I had to do a deep dive. Excellent. The Anna Head School for Girls K-12 through was founded by, duh, Anna Head, um, one of UC Berkeley's first female graduates. Oh, wow. From the class of 1879. Love to hear it. Anna was the daughter of an attorney and headmistress. She started the school at her own home in 1888, then employed architect and cousin Soleil Fisher to design the campus, which opened with one building in 1892.
1: Isn't it remarkable how she, coming from an educated family, she was able to be like, "Ah, I'll get my cousin to draw off the
0: plans. Like It's amazing, amazing how people with an education, no, other people with an education, just the cycle continues. Exactly. It's just that first step. Students at the school, all young, wealthy, white girls, had a tough curriculum to follow four years of English, math, foreign language, and history, plus a focus on natural science and physical activity, including basketball, dance, horseback riding, games, and more.
1: I love this school. I want to go.
0: I know. I would have wanted to go too. The school's aim was college preparation for these women, which, oh, that's given the time. Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. The campus would eventually have 14 buildings, but in 1955, UC Berkeley obtained the property through eminent domain. (gasps) Yeah. Forcing the school to move where it sits today.
1: Do not get me started on eminent domain. Yeah. Because, you know, St. Louis, Mm -hmm. you know, that's how St. Louis University snacks, um, grabbed up so much land in St. Louis City is eminent domain, but it was to vet benefit this private university. Right. And I'm still angry about it, and that was almost 20 years ago.
0: I can see that. Well, they moved to its current location in Oakland, California. Now, starting in the 70s, because this school still exists. Oh my gosh, I love this. Okay. The school became co-ed and had a new name. Ah. The Head Royce School. It is one of the top private schools in the country, which has an enrollment of 875 students and it's open to all. In fact, over 50% of the students are children of color. I love this. I know. I told you it got better.
1: I love this. Yay. So
0: if you go to their website and I'll provide a link on our website, it's amazing. They have a section devoted to diversity, equity, and inclusion and have several groups like whites against racism, black student union, women's Alliance, Asia club and more for grades nine through 12. And the K through five group has African American family network, Asian parents network, gender and sexuality diversity network, just to name a few. Wow. They are really committed to diversity, inclusion. I love this. And giving everybody a a good education. I love this. And I told my husband when I was learning about this, if we could afford it, honey, we could ship our girls off and (laughs) go to school there.
1: I you're mostly looking forward to the shipping the girls off, aren't you?
0: Yes and (laughs) no. I think it would be a great school. I mean, I'd be like tempted to move out there just to do that. But, you know, he's like, it's expensive in California. So that's what happened with that family. So now let's go back on the line. And we're going to start with Jesse's father, Thomas Jefferson Pomeroy, who was born in Plymouth County, Massachusetts, around 1834. In 1850, he was living with a Benjamin Moody family. No occupation was listed for him, and his parents were still living, so it's possible he was apprenticing as a baker oh. because that's Benjamin Moody's occupation. Although by 1855 he was working as a laborer at the Navy Yard in Charlestown, Massachusetts. So I'm not positive why he was there. Okay. Ruth Ann Snowman was born in Maine in January 1840. Neither one of them had the most stable situation growing up, hmm. and I can't help but wonder if this is if this is what drew them to each other. Thomas and Ruth would marry in September 1857. Son Charles was born seven months later. Oh, Mm -hmm. goodness. Yes. Whether or not she knew she was pregnant when they got married, Uh I don't know. It could have been a quick marriage the moment she realized she was pregnant. Who knows? Then the Civil War changed everything. In September 1862, Thomas enlisted in Company H of the 5th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment. His regiment was stationed at New Bern, North Carolina, arriving in October of that year. No fatalities in combat would occur over the next several months, but 16 would die of disease, including yellow fever.
1: Oh my God. Yeah.
0: Despite no losses to their own unit in combat, they did participate in expeditions and came under fire many times. So he did see battle. He was seeing people die and get injured. They returned to Boston mustering out, the whole regiment did, on July 2nd, 1863 at Camp Lander. I suspect the time at war is what drew Thomas to alcohol. Oh yeah. You know, if there wasn't already a drinking before. But I suspect not because I don't think Ruth would have necessarily married this man who was already a drunk.
1: Well, and I mean, honestly alcoholism is prevalent among veterans today. Yes. So I can't even imagine what it would have been like after the Civil War.
0: Right. And then when you add to this background as a child, which we're going to get to, it just added that much more to the situation. So by 1872, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, he had left the home. And I think it's likely earlier. He was on the 1870 census, though, with the family. I did find the following in the Boston Globe on April 28th, 1874 about the family. The ancestry of both the father and the mother of the boy derives from the vicinity of the Canadian border. The grandfather on the Pomeroy side, having come from some town not far distant from Eastport, Maine. The boy gets his name from his grandfather, whose name is Jesse Pomeroy, and who is yet living in New York, where he carries on the shipbuilding business on North River. He is about 70 years of age. More than 40 years ago, he first appeared in this vicinity, in the town of Hingham where he engaged in the trade of ship carpentry. He boarded with an estimable lady of that town, whose daughter, also spoken of as a very worthy and amiable person, he afterwards married. The couple afterwards lived in Charlestown, where Thomas, the father of the boy, now under arrest, was born. The union was not a happy one, and as the current report has it, the fault was with the man, not the woman. Mm. In some subsequent divorce proceedings, it appears that Pomeroy, ill-treated his wife in various harsh ways. And this is Thomas Pomeroy's father. The woman afterwards died and he married again in New York, this time a woman who is said to be equal to the emergency and maintains her position as mistress of the situation, whatever that means. Yeah. Thomas Pomeroy, the father of the boy under arrest, was a child of the first marriage and was born in Charlestown. He is now 40 years or more of age. He married Ruth A. Snowman of Eastport, Maine, but after a while, the couple separated. Pomeroy, as has been previously stated, came to Boston engaged in work at the market. While living in Charlestown, he was a stoker in the Navy Yard and attended the fires of the boiler used in pumping out the dry dock. Mrs. Pomeroy retired to South Boston where she established business as a dressmaker. Boy was left to drift pretty much at his own will. Contrary to previous statements, there is plenty of evidence to show that the reading of dime novels and narratives of bloody tragedies among the Indians and others constituted a good share of the boy's mental nourishment. And herein, he was not restricted, but commended rather for his studious literary disposition. (laughs) (laughs) So that gives you a little idea of the background. Wow. So let's talk about Jesse's namesake, since we just kind of mentioned him from that article, Thomas's father, Jesse H. Pomeroy. According to the American Pomeroy Historic Genealogy Association, because yes, that exists, um, he descended from Richard Pomeroy, who was born around 1640 in Maine, and Christine. Now, his ancestors originally living on the Isle of Shoals in Maine. Okay. Jesse was born in 1807 in Hampton, Maine, to John Pomeroy and Elizabeth Harding, one of 12 children. Oh, my. Yeah. At the age of 26, Jesse married 16-year-old Ruth Thomas Penny in Hingham, Massachusetts.
1: How old was he? 26. Well, that is you a bit, but it's not as you as some of them. Yeah, I mean, there's
0: more awful ones out there. As mentioned in the article I just read, it was not a happy union, but they were still married in 1850, living in Charlestown with youngest son Uriah. In fact, as far as I know, they only had two living children. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Thomas was listed as living at this household as well. So I found him at the Benjamin Moody house, and then I also found him at his house on the census. The divorce proceedings between Ruth and Jesse must have happened between 1850 and 1852. Ruth would die in November 1852 of consumption, which Mm. is, as we know now, tuberculosis. Jesse, a ship carpenter, left Massachusetts, living in New York City by 1855. I mean, his kids were grown when he left, so it's not like he left before then, but I'm not sure he cared that much either. Gosh. And I say that because he, um, so he goes to New York City, he boards with a Mrs. Mary E. Riggs and her two children, John and Mary. His son, Uriah, left behind, and this is the younger son, to live with his maternal grandmother. Interesting. So his oldest son is grown, and it's not a concern, but his youngest son, Uriah, was only... 15 when he left oh wow by 1860 jesse and mary 14 years his junior had married jesse died 11 years later at the age of 64 okay so he died before the stuff going on with jesse pomeroy happened so as i mentioned his grandmother Mary, who was married to jesse pomeroy was ruth thomas penny a woman he never had the opportunity to meet because she died of consumption at the age of 35 she was the daughter of John Penny, who was originally from England, and Temperance Damon. John immigrated to Massachusetts in october eighteen oh four, where he would soon meet and marry Temperance, a woman whose family had deep roots in Plymouth County, Massachusetts. The couple would have um the couple would have two boys before the War of eighteen twelve, a war John Penny fought in for the US. After the war they added five more children, with Ruth their only daughter. John died sometime in his 50s, between 1830 and 1840. In the years before her death in 1858 at age 70, Thomas and his brother would live with Temperance after their mother's death six years prior. Temperance's family were some of the earliest settlers in Plymouth County, Massachusetts. They were early pilgrims. Wow. Not Mayflower pilgrims, but they were pilgrims. Her fourth great-grandfather was Arthur Howland who arrived between 1623 and 1624 with his brother, Henry, joining their brother, John Howland, a Mayflower passenger. Wow. All three were sons of Henry and Margaret Howland, both born in the 1560s in Huntingdonshire, England. And FYI, Henry Howland was the ninth great-grandfather of Sir Winston Churchill on his mother's side. Really? Yes. Lots of famous ancestors coming from the Howlands. Wow. So Henry Howland, the original ancestor who stayed in England um, and the father of the Mayflower passenger John Howland and father or great great whatever great grandfather of Jesse Pomeroy was also the grandfather of Nathaniel Gorham. He was one of the signers of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, The 15th U.S. Vice President Hannibal Hamlin. Joseph Wharton, the founder of the Wharton School of Business. Oh, my gosh. Jonathan Wirth. 39th Governor of North Carolina, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Wow. Yes. Another poet, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Joseph Smith of the Mormons.
1: Oh, that's not quite as exciting.
0: <laughs> um, Potter Palmer. He was a co founder of Marshall Fields. Yeah. You're like, oh I know gosh. that. Hetty Green. She was known as the Witch of Wall Street. Oh, cool. Um, there's so many. Horace Gray uh-huh. was basically. Pomer- Jesse Pomeroy's distant cousin, though he didn't know it, because he's also a grand, great, 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 great grandson of oh Henry my gosh. Howland. Yes. Wow,
1: that's crazy.
0: Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and I—I I mean, oh, Henry, I could go. Richard Nixon, Humphrey Bogart, Alice Lee Roosevelt. Oh my gosh, you look hit a gold mine here. Yeah, Being Crosby. So th- i I have this list from famouskin dot com, so yeah, that's so cool. If you go far back enough on a tree, <laughs> sometimes you run into a lot of ancestors <laughs> that connect that's so cool, so he yeah, has some roots, but I found it the most interesting that Horace Gray, the one who decided his case, was also his family member, and they didn't they had no idea yeah, they want to know, but
1: how far back would that have been? That would have been well, oh, that would have been generations? several
0: generations they would probably be like eighth, ninth cousins. I mean, I didn't figure it out on my own, but I just found that interesting. so now let's go talk about Jesse's mother, Ruth Snowman now with Thomas leaving Ruth as she he did, she had to make ends meet on her own for herself and her boys because he wasn't supporting any of them, so she did what she knew. Becoming a dressmaker. Okay. After Jesse's arrest and subsequent conviction, Ruth would, for a time, move in with her oldest son, Charles, and his family. And as mentioned earlier, after Charles remarried, her granddaughters, Abby and Mabel, would live with her until her death at age 74 in 1915. And at her death, that ended all attempts to pardon Jesse. Something she worked on from the time of his imprisonment. Wow. and I mean, she worked so hard for that and i actually have her obituary
1: oh my goodness
0: um this is from january 11th 1915 in the boston globe long fight for pardon over death comes to jesse pomeroy's mother believed in famous son's innocence for 40 years wow for more than 40 years she has been known as the mother of jesse pomeroy it was in 1874 that he was sent to prison for a life term a boy of 14 years she was then a woman of about 35, who with her bought boys kept a shop in South Boston. Year after year, she fought for her son's release. She never believed him guilty of the crime with which he was charged, even in spite of his own confession, and always hoped that evidence would turn up somewhere to prove his innocence. Yearly, she presented her petition for his pardon, and once every month she went to visit her son, a visit made under the eye of the turnkey, and take him what comforts she could afford. In 1909, she suffered a severe attack of double pneumonia, which left her health permanently shattered. But in May 1911, she made a last appeal for a pardon to Governor Foss. She had suffered greatly from the notoriety her son's case brought her, and long ago in the 70s, she was herself detained several months in the Charles Street Jail because authorities believed she was connected with the crime. Wow. For many years, she conducted a lunch room at 489 Neponset Avenue near the terminal of the Bay State and Boston Elevated Car Lines. By 1901, she gave it up and moved to this town. Besides Jesse and her daughter, here she leaves a son, Charles Pomeroy, a Worcester hotel man. His arrival is awaited before funeral arrangements are made. And then it goes on to say that the illness of a grandchild with diphtheria has put the house temporarily under quarantine. So... And that Jesse would be notified in the morning of his mother's death, so the the paper comes out before she's been they've been told. Wow! After she died, Jesse actually did arrange for a wreath at the funeral for her. Oh. I don't know how that was done, but the wreath consisting of roses, asparagus, and carnations with blue ribbon, and it had a blue, the blue ribbon said "mother."
1: Are you sure it was asparagus?
0: I was. I am positive it was asparagus. I guess the flower of an asparagus.
1: Interesting. Okay.
0: (laughs) You're going to go look up the flower and see.
1: Yeah, because Um, I'm curious. I found that
0: curious too. After her death, Jesse insisted he was entitled to half of her $2,000 estate, um, sharing with his brother Charles, provided he be released. It clearly never happened. In fact, though, in April 1916, Jesse hired an attorney to bring a case against his niece the administrator of Ruth's will claiming that her accounting should not be allowed. Oh, so he was paying attention to stuff, but you know,
1: okay. There's an asparagus fern.
0: Oh me. That's what that is. Yeah, that's
1: what that is. Cause I'm like trying to picture asparagus, mm-hmm. but okay. I'm good. Now my curiosity has been resolved.
0: Now let's talk about Ruth Snowman's ancestors, much like her husband. Thomas Pomeroy, Ruth Snowman did not have an easy time of it growing up. She was born in January 1840, the youngest of five, to Mother Suzanne Campbell, just seven weeks after the death of her father, John Snowman. Wow. So, yeah, she never knew her dad. Wow. Interestingly enough, John died at sea, just as his older brother, John, did in 1809. So, this is a pattern I've noticed when I've done research. The family will have children. They give them their names, right? One of their children dies, and it's a family name they love. A new baby's born. They give that name of the previous sibling who died to that new baby. Wow. And that's what happened here. So his older brother had died at sea. His name was John. Here comes a new baby. He's named John, and then he died at sea. That's not creepy at all. No. So the Snowman family traces back to Christian Snowman, born in 1690 in London, who came to the colonies where he married Mary Cooper in Boston, Jesse's third great-grandparents. Christian and Mary would settle in York, Maine, in an area their family would remain for many generations. Now a single mother to five littles, all under the age of five, all but um, one child born in January, Um, Suzanne sent some of her children to live with other family members. Were
1: any of the children twins?
0: No. Oh, dear God, that poor woman. Yes. In 1850, Susan, as she went by, lived at an inn with her daughter Irene and her husband's niece, Temperance Snowman, who was 22. Um, Her children, Nancy and Robert Gideon, lived with their uncle, William Thomas Snowman, father of Temperance. Son, Alexander, lived with susan's parents alexander campbell and nancy mcfadden the baby ruthann lived with her mother's brother john campbell and his family okay i guess it's no surprise she would leave maine and marry a man when she was only 16 or 17 oh um, that's so painful and she married a man who himself was a troubled orphan of 23
1: okay well and again You know, 17 and 23,
0: that's only six years. But they were both orphans, is more my, you know, yeah. She's marrying a slightly older man, not nothing outrageous, but Mm -hmm. that was more preferable to her. Yeah. Than being in the situation she was, where she's not even with her family, everything's separated. Right. And I believe not only did Ruth's father die at sea, but her brother Robert Gideon did as well in 1906 at the age of 67. And that is the tragic family tree of Jesse Harding Pomelline. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. It's just... It's so sad. It really is. Other than that little bit about the Anna Head School, which was kind of cool, it really is kind of a depressing tree, but you can kind of see where it was like a... Ruth Snowman probably got married to Thomas because... They had something in common. They were both had lost parents. Mm -hmm. He was a complete orphan. She was missing her father. They both came from a troubled background. You know, you get it. Oh yeah. And then he goes to war, and it just probably everything got really bad. Yeah, the
1: Civil War messed everybody up. Yeah. For a long time, we're we still have the ramifications of it today.
0: And then you know Thomas though came from this home where he was being abused. There was abuse in the home, his home. Yeah. So I'm sure, not that, you know, people who live in abused homes don't necessarily become abusers. But that is the model mm-hmm. he was raised with. And that's troubling. So, yeah.
1: Wow. Well, Janice, this was absolutely riveting. Oh, my gosh. And you have some good nuggets in there. So,
0: super I fun. It was perfect size uh, mini sewed. And our next episode, we're going to be returning... To regular length episodes, which will be about twice the week. <laughs> and our first one up is going to be covering Larry Eiler. And anybody who's been listening to the episodes might recall that he came up because a Bell Goddess, her great great nephew, was one of Larry Eiler's victims. So that will wow. be an interesting one. And as promised, I have a review. Someone who clearly has listened to our Q&A episode, I think. And it's from Sandy SM. And it says, Hey, ladies, when your kids are out of the house for the day, take a nap. Do something for yourself. There's only one you. Love hearing the history of criminals. Oh, that's nice. So thank you, Sandy, for that great review. That's lovely. So again, if you leave a review, we'll read it. Mm -hmm. And we also, if you became become a patron just at the three dollar level we'll give you a shout out on the podcast as well so
1: yeah and honestly we'll probably start composing epic poetry about you as well
0: that's more amy Ann.
1: we just don't guarantee it
0: (laughs) (laughs) well that was a great one
1: thank you so much for doing all that work denise i mean that's just amazing it's amazing to me what you're able to dig
0: up it's fun i have fun there are some trees, though, I get to, and I just drag through, and I don't know what it is about that tree, and there are some that I'm like, ooh, let me get more,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I, I think I mentioned this to you once um, when we weren't recording, that I sometimes wonder if I could just feel a certain energy coming through on some of the trees, and it's just so disturbing. Mm-hmm. I struggle getting through, Yeah, and I just finished one of those recently that we're going to be covering this fall. And now I'm onto to something new. I'm like, oh, I feel such relief. Yeah. And I, and I mean, I'm on to another murderer's tree. It's not like I'm like going, oh, let's go to something happy. Yeah. Happy, happy, <laughs> joy, joy. No.
1: It's just one murderer after another. But, yeah.
0: You know, I suppose
1: at some point we could do a victim just to change it I up a bit. I do
0: have some to talk to. You about. Later. Ooh, fun. So that is a possibility. And I know we're going to be doing... Um, one in June for sure. But uh, that's, that's a long way off. So I do have some Uh, possibilities that I went. So we'll see.
1: Excellent. Well, I hope you have a great week and and we should all be getting in touch with our murderous roots, right?
0: Yes, definitely. (laughs) Thank you for listening to murderous roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. You can also find us at murderousroots.com. That's M U R. D E R O U S R O O T S dot com, where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed.